All right, be honest with me. How many of you have ever unfriended somebody on Facebook because they posted a very strong political or religious opinion? Be honest, be honest. And I know some of you don't see that chat, but for those that see the chat, just chime in and say, I've done that. I did that. Don't tell us who it was. How many of you have somebody in your life, and you'll be honest with me, and you say, I deliberately avoid that person because of their strong views on whatever the subject is? Let me stir the pot a little bit more. Journey with me, shall we? I want you to think of the first thing that comes to mind when I talk about folks who are Trump supporters. And I'm not just talking about people who think he's okay. I'm talking about the people that wear the Make America Great Again hat. What about those who are super anti-Trump, like he's the devil? What about people who wave the BLM flag? What about people who are super anti-Black Lives Matter? Uh, what about these days? What about folks that think every Canadian should be required to get the vaccine? What about anti-vaxxers? How do you feel about them? The political left, the political right, super pro-life, super pro-choice, pro-gay marriage, anti-gay marriage. Did you feel it? Did you feel a little voice inside of you say, I have nothing in common with blank? And I'm not saying that any of those views are good. I'm not saying that any of them are bad. I'm not saying that any of them are right or any of them are wrong. I'm not making a comment on the moral uprightness of those views. What I am saying is that the list is growing. The list of hot button issues that are driving wedges between siblings and friends and spouses and parents and children. And let me actually even correct myself. It's not the issue itself that drives the wedge. It's our complete and total inability to talk about them. And if we can't convert them, we ignore them. If we can't convince them, we unfriend them. But it doesn't have to be this way. We can learn from Jesus. He's a really great teacher, by the way. We can learn how to interact with and get along with and even enjoy people who are on the opposite side of these very important issues. We can find common ground with those who are as different from us as night is different from day. I find it fascinating, actually, that I have to begin this series by convincing you that finding common ground is a Christ-like quality. I mean, there are those out there that would say, I don't have anything in common with those people. They are so different from me. They hold an unbiblical view. Thus, I should not need to, want to, have to find common ground with them. But we have to start in that place by saying, look, finding common ground, learning how to converse, interact with, and even enjoy people who are different from you is an intrinsically Christ-like, biblical, and valuable quality. Here we are in a world where I've got to convince you that that's Christ-like. But let's do it anyway. What I want to offer to you to begin is just four points, four quick points as to why finding common ground is biblical, 
valuable and Christ-like. That is to say, learning the skills that it takes to interact with people who aren't just a little different from you, but who hold opposing lightning rod views that put you at odds with them. Here we go. Number one, finding common ground opens up space for gospel conversation. If you love the gospel, the good news about Jesus, and you want to share it with people, there has to be a space to do that. And if you're yelling your views at them and not engaging in conversation, then there is no space to open up for gospel conversation. Think about the street preacher on the corner. What they're saying a lot of times is not wrong or unbiblical. Sometimes it is, but a lot of times it's not. Why do we push back against that? Why do we bristle up against that? Is because there's no space for conversation. And when we find common ground with those with whom we disagree with most, it opens up space for gospel conversation. Number two, finding common ground makes you a better person. Yes, even those you disagree with. Yes, even those on the other side of the political aisle. Yes, even those with whom you disagree with most about the deepest and most important issues of our day. If you enter into a conversation with them that's mutually respectful, open and vulnerable and honest, it can make you a better person. Number three, finding common ground recognizes the image of God in the other. Finding common ground recognizes the image of God in the other. And we're going to talk about this more as we kind of journey through this series together. But it's so important that we distinguish people from ideas. And so often we come against an idea that we disagree with deeply and we dismiss the idea and subsequently, and here's the problem, we dismiss the person. And in dismissing the person, we are saying that you are not valuable, you are not loved, you are not cared for, and that's simply not true. But when we enter into conversation with that individual and find common ground, it recognizes the image of God in them. Number four, and this one's probably the most important, finding common ground is what Jesus would do. We have wondered aloud, what would Jesus do? We have wondered on little bracelets, WWJD. You want the answer? Finding common ground is indeed what J would D. Finding common ground is what Jesus would do. Now you might be thinking, come on, Luke, Jesus found common ground with those with whom he disagreed with most. Yes, he did. The most famous Bible verse of all time, John chapter 3, verse 16, comes from a conversation that Jesus is having with a man named Nicodemus. The beginning of that chapter says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This individual was a religious leader. He was a Pharisee, likely someone people would consider a hypocrite. He was a member of the ruling party that Jesus would eventually call things like, you are whitewashed tombs, you are full of rotting bones. 
You wash the outside of the cup, but you pay no attention to the inside. You're a brood of snakes. You want to talk about somebody that Jesus disagreed with at the most fundamental level? And yet here he is, finding common ground, having a gospel conversation, that people still hold up signs at ball games, a, a line, a quote from this very conversation. Next chapter. John chapter 4, Jesus is having a conversation with a woman at a well in Samaria. John chapter 4, verse 7 says, A woman from Samaria came near to draw water. So not only would men and women not interact at all in this day, they would have had nothing in common, at least that would have been the perception, but Jews, which Jesus was, and Samaritans hated one another. We really don't have a cultural reference point today for two ethnicities that hated each other more than Jews and Samaritans. They had nothing in common. There was no common ground. And here Jesus was finding common ground. And these are just two examples. But the New Testament is teeming with places that Jesus found common ground with people most unlike him. Jesus with tax collectors, Jesus with sinners, Jesus with religious leaders, Jesus with the thief on the cross, Jesus with the demon possessed. And these were not insignificant disagreements. They were deep rifts over and over and over again. We see Jesus finding common ground with people most unlike him. And if you think about it, Jesus' most profound interactions were with people he disagreed with most. Jesus, as a human being, is not nearly as likable unless he interacts with people unlike himself. That's what we love about Jesus. Think about your favorite Jesus stories or think about your favorite Bible verses. John 3.16 comes in the context of a conversation with a person that Jesus disagreed with. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, If anybody slaps you on one cheek, turn to them your other cheek. The great commandment, love God and love people. Luke chapter 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus is talking to a religious leader, an expert in the law. He says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into this story. There would be no Jesus without a seemingly impossible divide. Finding common ground is simply what Jesus would do. Now, you might argue, if you're familiar with the biblical text and the life and ministry of Jesus, and specifically those two interactions in John 3 and John 4, that Jesus' primary aim there was not to find common ground, but to reveal His identity as Messiah. And if you argued that, you'd be right. However... If you are familiar with those passages, you know that Jesus didn't just show up to Nicodemus's house or show up to the woman at the well on that fateful day in Samaria and say, I'm the Messiah, worship me. No, he engaged in conversation. He asked questions. He empathized. He said things like, oh, you worship? I'm a worshiper too, woman at the well in Samaria. He used a story that Nicodemus would have been intimately familiar with to help draw some kind of connections for Nicodemus. He found common ground and walked with them on their journey toward discovering who Jesus really was. And if Jesus should do it, you should too. And if Jesus could do it, you can too. So I hope that I have convinced you that 
Finding common ground is a Christ-like quality that Christians who claim to follow Jesus should strive to achieve in their life. If I haven't convinced you, stick with us. We're going to talk about that more in the coming weeks. But if I have convinced you, what I want to do today is return to those two stories in particular. The interaction with Nicodemus in John 3 and the interaction with the woman at the well in John 4 and Paul 2. Just two skills that Jesus brings to bear in those conversations in order to find common ground. And next week, we're going to talk about a number of other skills, but today we're just going to grab two, two practical skills for finding common ground. And here's the first one. Ready? If you're jotting down notes, jot this down. Meet people on their turf and on their terms. Meet people on their turf and on their terms. Let's begin with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, an expert in the law, a member of the Jewish ruling council. They weren't big fans of Jesus. But Nicodemus knew if somebody's doing the things he's doing, they've come from God. I got some questions for this guy. But he didn't want to kind of out himself to his fellow religious leaders. He didn't want to put himself in danger or cause himself to be ostracized from his community. So the Bible says that he went to Jesus at night. Not only did he go to Jesus at night, but Jesus came to his home. Well, why would Nicodemus not meet Jesus in a public place in the middle of the day? Because he's a little shy, isn't he? Maybe embarrassed concern for himself. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had a friend that said to me, I only want to hang out with you when no one can see me hang out with you. I only want to hang out with you in private spaces, not public spaces. I'm kind of embarrassed of our friendship, but I'd still like to kind of have a friendship and ask you some questions, get to know you a little bit. I would say go take a long walk off a short pier, but Jesus does not. He meets Nicodemus on his turf and on his terms. Second, woman at the well. The woman at the well in Samaria was there at midday, John chapter 4 tells us. Now, in an agrarian culture like that, people would go to the well at the beginning of the day, gather all of their water for the course of the day, bring it back to their place of dwelling, and have the water for the day. The woman at the well was there at midday. Why? Because she didn't want to see anybody else. And here's Jesus on his journey from Galilee in the north down toward Jerusalem. And rather than going around Samaria, which most Jews would do, Jesus passed through Samaria, sat down at this well in order to have a conversation with this woman. You see, he met her on her turf and on her terms. Out of 132 contacts that Jesus had with people that are recorded in the gospel, six were in the temple, four were in the synagogue, and 122 were in the mainstream of life. So how is it that we, as Christians, want to have conversations with people in the church? Or on a Christian website, or on Twitter or Facebook, for crying out loud, don't get me started on that. How is it that we want to have conversations with people in places that we are comfortable and in control when the person that we claim to follow did the exact opposite? He met people on their turf and on their terms. And when you step into someone else's world, it communicates some things, doesn't it? It communicates value. 
it communicates concern. It puts them at ease. It communicates safety. Think about when that tough supervisor at work calls you into their office. Think about when the principal says, excuse me, uh, send Lucas to the principal's office. Think about sitting in the principal's office, how, how uncomfortable and unsafe that makes you feel. But look at it the other way. When that supervisor enters into your world in a place that you're in control and comfortable. When that principal sits down by a kid in kindergarten on a teeny tiny little chair and lets that kid color and says, what are you doing? Tell me about it. Talk to me about it. Or, or maybe the greatest example of all, think about when the God of the universe steps into a manger at Bethlehem. Jesus was a master at meeting people on their turf and on their terms. And again, if we follow him, we must do the same. So first, as you're finding common ground and as you seek to find common ground with folks you disagree with, with whom you don't share much in common, you can find common ground if you'll start by meeting people on their turf and on their terms. And here's the second one. Here's the second critical skill. Ask questions. Ask questions. Just ask questions. It might sound self-evident or obvious, but it's not that self-evident or obvious, is it? Because most of us are not question askers. We rarely ask questions, and when we do, they're typically bad questions. They're yes or no questions, they don't invite conversations, or they're questions that hold with them an implication, things like, why are you so stupid? You know, we ask bad questions on the rare occasion. We do ask questions because most of us are convinced that it's our job to present facts and figures and news stories and headlines in order to support our claim. That's our modus operandi. That's what most people do and think. That's how we roll. We are convinced that convincing is what convicted people do. Listen, once, one more time. We're convinced that convincing people is what convicted people do. And that's simply not true. It's quite the opposite, actually. Convicted folks aren't convincers, they're questioners. Yep, I said it. Listen to it again. Convicted folks are not convincers, they're questioners. How do I know? Because Jesus was the most convicted man that ever lived, and he asked questions all the time. He began when he was a little boy. A lot of people think that when his parents left him at the temple, they came back. He was teaching the religious leaders. That's not what the Bible says. Luke chapter 2, verse 46 says, After three days, they found the boy Jesus in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them, and look at it, asking questions. Throughout the entirety of the four Gospels, Jesus asked questions in more than half of the conversations that he had. Peter, who do you say I am? Martha, do you believe this? Blind man, do you want to get well? Disciples, why are you so afraid? Disciples, are you going to leave also? Disciples, why did you doubt? Expert in the law, how do you read the law? And in the case of our conversation we're looking at today, John chapter 3, Nicodemus, how is it that you don't understand? How will you understand if I talk about heaven? He asked two questions in that text. And they're not condescending assumptive questions or presumptive questions. He's genuinely asking Nicodemus questions. This was Jesus. He asked questions, but we don't. Why? 
because we're scared. <laughs> we are. We're scared that if we ask someone a question and they communicate back to us something that we don't believe in or something that we're even certain is not true, that somehow what they've said is going to float off into space somewhere and others are going to buy it and grab it, hook, line, and sinker, and believe a lie. But Jesus didn't think that way. You know why? Because he knew the one who had all the answers. So he was comfortable asking questions. He knew that it was the Spirit's job to convict. So he was comfortable asking questions. And friends, when we follow in Jesus' footsteps, when we believe in a God and trust in a God who knows the end from the beginning, a God who has all the answers, a God who can turn a heart of stone into a heart of flesh, and it's not our job to convict or convince, all of a sudden we free ourselves up to simply ask questions. And in doing so, we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And can I give you just one more kind of quick tip here? When you ask questions, ask good questions. In their book, it's called How to Have Impossible Conversations, Peter Boghossian and James Lindsay point out that calibrated questions are the best questions. You might call them open-ended questions. So these are not questions that begin with the words can, is, are, does, or do. Those are yes, no questions. Great questions, calibrated questions, open-ended questions begin with how or what. So as you're asking questions this week, Begin with those questions with the words, how or what? Great open-ended questions, and in that way you follow in the footsteps of Jesus. And you know what? If you know the story of Nicodemus and the woman at the well, if you know both of those stories, you know that both of those individuals eventually became convinced, didn't they? Nicodemus was one of the followers of Jesus that cared for his body and buried him after his crucifixion. The woman at the well would end that conversation with Jesus, go back to her hometown and say to her friends and family, come, see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Christ? But they did not become convinced because Jesus hit them over the head with a Messiah mallet. They did not become convinced because of Jesus' extraordinary rhetorical skill. They became convinced because Jesus, the Jesus we follow, found common ground. And he used two skills that we talked about today. We'll talk about more next week. He met them on their turf, on their terms, and he asked great questions. So I would ask you, who needs you to walk across the aisle this week? Who needs you to meet them on their turf and on their terms? And who needs you to ask a few great questions. I pray that God would lead you into those conversations this week.